Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. We were offering two separate conversations from last Monday's episode, What to Listen for Friday at the FDA webcast. Each conversation will include a portion of the original podcast, followed by some comments from me about what we heard on those subjects on Friday. In this conversation, the second one, the panelists, Stephen Harrison, Anand Alpalala, Louise Campbell, and me, identify specific issues we hope will be addressed. Kitty Yale, Chief Development Officer from Kiero Therapeutics, who joins us Friday, submitted four items in writing I list during the conversation. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. I really do think that this is going to have to be appraised on a unique target, unique sponsor basis and a comfort level. But this all still feeds into some undercurrents, which we haven't touched on, you know, our, our screen fail rate for patients who on clinical premises have NASH and for all practical purposes, elevated liver enzymes or fat on ultrasound failing to be included in studies because they didn't meet the definite NASH histologic endpoint and screen fail rates that go anywhere between as high as 40 to 70% in trials but also the the depth of heterogeneity of patients that are included into clinical trials because they have the histological endpoint, but yet be clinically very heterogeneous, diabetics and non-diabetics, dyslipidemics and non-dyslipidemics, obese and lean patients, all kind of going into comparable trials. And we have not yet mastered appropriately phenotyping our patients using endpoints other than just histologic. I would be very interested to see what the agency has to say about our patients selection and insights on the screen fail rates and and potentially how to optimize that such that we can be more targeted in our ability to interpret the safety efficacy endpoints and potentially even optimize them beyond what we're seeing. We may be diluting out our ability to achieve a registration endpoint because of the complexity and the heterogeneity of the disease state itself. Great comments all. Any clarifying questions for Manal and then we can go on? Well, I, let me just say I, I completely support and agree with what Manal said and, and maybe I'll extend it a little bit more and say, look, in, in, our, in our phase two program, do we even need to be doing liver biopsy to qualify for the study? And can we begin to take the data that we have in front of us and that we, we've presented and published and use it to define a, you can call it a presumed NASH population or a probable NASH, or I would like to just call it a NASH population using non-invasive tests. You know, maybe that's MRI PDFF to define the fat content in a non-serotic trial and then MR elastography or a fibrous scan to help define the amount of, of fibrosis. I'm a little leery of FibroScan because of its positive predictive value not being as high. But I do think we can we can get at a presumed NASH population for phase two without doing liver biopsy by looking at something as simple as an AST above a certain threshold. You have fat, we quantify that, and then we can get at some metric of liver stiffness. And we're getting really good now at some of our clinical tools. In fact, Rohit Lumba published a paper of just, I think it came out on 
online this month in gut showing that a FIB4 of 1.6 with an MRE of 3.2 or 3.3 actually had a positive predictive value of something like 80% for NASH and that that could be used as basically a tool to define the NASH population. That would help us significantly, Manal, in enrolling our patients and getting away from some of this heterogeneity and sampling variability and intra and inter-observer variability statistic we have. And quite frankly, if we don't do a biopsy on the front end, well, do we really need one on the back end? Let's just repeat those non-invasive tests. And then we learn from that. And yes, while we still need to do phase three liver biopsies, because that's our subpart H surrogate endpoint, I think we can all agree, or hopefully we can reach consensus that you are de-risking your phase three by showing very positive results on non-invasive tests in phase two. And I think that would encourage enrollment. It would speed up enrollment timelines. And I'm not sure it would hurt us at all getting into phase three, where you still have to have that biopsy at the beginning and the end. I threw that out there maybe as a little bit of a provocative statement, but I I think it would help overall. I don't think it's a provocative statement. And I think if you look at the draft guidance, they've actually left open the door to answer Manal's question. In the phase two development considerations, they've got a nice paragraph in there, um, which in the early trials, baseline histological documentation of NASH may not always be needed, depending on the endpoints to be assessed. Sponsors can enroll patients based on either known histological diagnosis or NASH or a combination of biochemical criteria and or imaging evidence of steatosis, steatohepatitis, fibrosis, in addition to known risk factors for NASH. So I think in their development considerations, that really nicely ask us to look at non-invasive ways to categorize the patients that both you and Manal have just described and to basically invent your own studies with those criteria and to prove them as clinically accurate as we can. And I think that's great. I agree with you. The problem is what's not clear is, is that a 2A or a 2B? Because very historically, very classically, we do 2A. We've gotten to the point where in 2As, we just do non-invasive testing, but it's it's in smaller numbers of patients. It's proof of concept. Are we moving the needle? And does that warrant then a more expensive liver biopsy phase 2B where we show histopathology improving and then we use that to power our phase 3 based on the magnitude of effect change that we see. And it also helps trigger which endpoint we're going to go after. In other words, are we seeing more NASH resolution? Are we seeing more fibrosis benefit? And so that helps decide, okay, where do we want to spend our alpha? You know, and, and, and I think if they could give us some clarity around that, Louise, saying, look, even in phase 2B, you can come to your end of phase 2B meeting with the FDA with non-invasive data. That would be, boy, in fact, I might even ask that question if I get the opportunity because I think that would be provocative. That would be provocative. That would be provocative. I totally agree. couple of First of all, you could just bulk up your two A's if that was the place you could go. I understand it doesn't solve a problem to be. But second, I want to read Kitty's questions because one of them in particular goes back to the downside in all this, which stems from I think the question I asked about what you need for sample size. Kitty had said that she was looking for four specific. One, clarity around their statement regarding worsening comorbidities, according here. NASH patients are also vulnerable to other diseases and the investigational drug should not worsen comorbidities, including cardiovascular disease, hyperlipidemia, 
metabolic disease, diabetes, or cause liver injury. Her comment was, this has been a challenge for a number of MOAs and provides clear direction for expectations to the next generation of drugs in development. That's, uh, I think that's a focused statement more than a question per se. Number two, additional guidance on size of overall pre-approval safety database. And there, the quote she used is, provide a sufficiently large pre-approval safety database that will facilitate the assessment of risk and benefit. And what she was asking is, they talk about the ICH guidelines. The ICH guidelines would suggest larger than 1,500 samples. And that would align with my comment about they're looking for uh, one of the 1,000 events. And if, in fact, that's what they're looking for, and all that has to come in phase three, particularly given that, that they've noted as well that they'll, you might need more than one pivotal study, I'm not sure how all these pieces fit together, but that one jumped out at me, and then they jumped out at her as well for the same reason. And it's kind of the flip of what we're talking about here. Although, if you could get to the end of 2B without having done biopsy, and we're able to put enough patients into it that you had better and deeper information, how would that play out against any of these sample size issues or these three issues, as she noted? And then her third comment, FDA provided clear guidance on requirements of histological analysis in terms of inter-reader concordance. and should lead to standardization across studies. Great to see the process outlined in the manuscript aligns with our recent FDA feedback for upcoming studies, which I read as saying she sees some consistency in all this uh, from sitting at a Carol's point. And then fourth, quoting, looking for a glimmer of hope for subpart H approval in cirrhotic patients based on summary comments. And I quote, for clinical trials of compensated cirrhosis secondary to NASH, we continue to recommend a traditional approval pathway based on improvement in the clinical benefit outcomes. And then she highlights, DHN is open to discussions with sponsors about other options for approval for this population. So those were hers. Any reactions? It, it may be a little easier for the cirrhotic cohort, in fact, to move away from biopsy is, is the ideal uh, endpoint. Number one, they are already closer to a clinically meaningful outcome on the order of almost 20% at, at two to three years, in which case it, the not only all cause mortality event rate, but the liver-related mortality event rate may be a little bit more tangible uh, endpoint to measure. And when you think about an invasive endpoint, as we've seen in many trials in cirrhosis, the ability to discern a quantifiable uh, change in liver fibrosis on histology with light microscopy may be very different. Not all fibrosis may be the same. Uh, there may be very minor changes or in the even fine changes in and fibrosis regression that cannot be readily measured by, by light microscopy alone, and that introduces alternative platforms, which in and of themselves are surrogate pathology platforms for quantifying collagen and changes using artificial intelligence and liver histology. And when you balance the compensated cirrhosis risk, the risk of bleeding or a bile leak is, is incrementally higher when we do liver biopsies in patients with cirrhosis than a non-cirrhotic liver. Having done biopsies for almost 25 years of my career still have a little residence of biopsying patients with known cirrhosis because while the risk is low overall, the risk is still slightly higher than in non-cirrhotic livers. So I would be eager to see us as a field move away from biopsy as a quantifiable endpoint as we move closer to alternative meaningful endpoints in cirrhotic cohorts. I think that might be easier than, than non-cirrhotic. Louise, do you have two or three specific things you're looking to see come out of this meeting that you think would be helpful specific points from where you sit? Um, 
I suppose the specific points I'd like to see considered are patient-related outcomes. I think, yes, we have a lot of focus on the histopathological outcomes of these medications, but certainly in the phase, early phase studies and proof of concepts and phase two studies, I'd quite like to see some more information coming out about what helps patients. And when Manal was talking about the cirrhotic patients and decompensation and, uh, and time to those, I think they do make it clear that they're looking at improvement in decompensation. They're looking at improvement in outcomes, but also outcomes for patients earlier in disease pathways are, can they go back to work a little bit longer and more frequently? Do they spend less time integrating with hospital services? There are lots of ways that we can measure the outcomes of some of the clinical interventions that we put in, either with placebo or with the investigative medication. And I think looking for those other markers of people's physical and mental improvement can be actually very informative. And that's what people want. They want a better quality of life. They do want to know that their liver is improving. But which bits improve first? Do you get a better quality of life? Do you get less sort of healthcare acquired costs? There's all sorts of different ways that I'd like to be able to see that these medications are measured by, not just a histopological endpoint. So I'd like to see a little bit more detail in there for patient-related outcomes. And I think I'd be concerned if there weren't people raising, like the GLI, about raising the clinical endpoints for patients. And I suppose it would concern me if there aren't any. But I'm sure there will be. I'm sure following the um, intercept incident, I think they have learnt, and I would hope that they move on from nothing about us without us for the patients and that their concerns are heard. So I'd certainly like to see some of that detailed a little bit more, sort of bit more meat on the bones, I suppose, about patient outcomes. And I think if they don't, that could be damaging to the way patients want to interact with these studies. Now, just would it be your read of the document that they are likely to do that, not likely to do that, hard to read one way or another? Yeah, I, I have a lot of the confidence in the FDA. I, I think they are really, really striving to do the right thing by the field. This is a complex disease, um, multiple moving parts as the science propels itself forward, the drug targets propel themselves forward. And, and the FDA having the onerous responsibility of ensuring public health and safety. So they they have a, a, a very difficult job. And I think the more stakeholders are involved and engaged and willing to have have difficult discussions around these endpoints and safety and and risk tolerance, as well as rethinking how we do clinical trials in this space. This is how we propel things forward. But I, I am looking forward to Friday's discussion, and I think it will be very enlightening. Okay, great. Then what I'd like to do is take what I call the third and fourth questions in the document I sent over. Let's wrap them into one, and let's start to wrap it up, okay? And um, it may be redundant for each of you, but let's try it anyway. Now, the best realistic expectation you have for what comes out of this meeting and a disappointing outcome that you would consider realistic, but well, that 
can we see a realistic but disappointing? So see if we can put some kind of goalposts around it, good end, bad end. I think a realistic outcome that I hope would come out of this meeting and discussion is the ability to look at data in its totality, uh, irrespective of whether it's, quote, surrogate data, because I, I think we've recognized that biopsy in and of itself is, is surrogate in predicting an outcome. But to look at the totality of data with unique spectacles based on the targets and their their early uh, mechanisms of action. I think what I would be disappointed at is if our experience, particularly as we've come to learn with the evolving phase 2B and, and now phase 3 treatment landscape, still binds us to a one-size-fits-all and a primary endpoint that's pivotal only on histology. For that, I think I would be somewhat disappointed because I think we still have a lot of work to do in refining that endpoint in and of itself. Okay, thanks. Uh, Louise, take the goalposts. Positive outcome, realistic, disappointing outcome also realistic. I suppose positive outcome, I think, is the emphasis they're putting on the surrogate markers to locate the right patients earlier, which engenders to me that I can get more people involved in clinical trials, more people will be interested, they're going to be less scared, and the outcomes. I think I agree with Manal completely in the one-size-fits-all isn't a good outcome, if that would be the outcome that it's so rigid in stone, because every patient is different, Every patient has different comorbidities. And I think maybe considering the improvement in the comorbidities is also outcome measures for some of the medical interventions that we're going to put in. So I think that would be a negative. So I agree with Manal on that, if one size fits all is the outcome. But I doubt it. I think reading the documents, there is a lot more emphasis on getting the right patients in, getting those screen failures down by selecting and using the best surrogate markers that we've got at the moment and improving the surrogate markers. I think improving surrogate markers through early phase trials is a real potential outcome through documentation like this and the FDA's sort of movement on that. And I think that's a strength. So that's where I'd finish that. Stephen, would you like to go on to the two or three endpoints? From your perspective, what is a really good realistic outcome to this webcast and what would be a disappointing realistic outcome to this webcast? Well, let me just start with what would be a disappointment. The disappointment to me would be just a recapitulation of the white paper that they published in hepatology. What I would like to see is that be the foundation on which they begin to build the framework that, that really puts some granular detail to some of these hard questions we have. You know, it's almost like building a house, right? If the white paper is the house, now they're going to come in with the interior design and flesh it out a little bit on the inside. That's what we need. These questions we've raised today are really, really pragmatic questions that helps clear the air as to what needs to be done to cross the finish line successfully in the eyes of the Federal Drug Administration. Without that, we will be left with unanswered questions and ambiguity that will just continue to hamper and hamstring our efforts to find great drugs for patients at the greatest need for help. I would be disappointed if they don't add quite a bit of clarity around these issues we raised today. And I'm, I'm confident that they will. 
Okay. Stephen, that's great. And uh, for me, I think a lot of this is going to wind up being around numbers. I go back to Kitty's comment about the 1500 sample on the IHC and where does it have to come from? If we go all the way through 2B without, without a biopsy and have those patients counted, even if not on the efficacy side of the equation, on the safety side of it, so that we can start to sort out relatively low incidence side effects faster and more efficiently as we go through the process, I think that's a good thing. I think the more patients are required to come through process, and the more they're all required to come through the same process in phase three, that's a challenge. Now, that's kind of the flip side of one thing you folks were talking about, which is the more heterogeneous we're going to be in the patients we select, and the more confident we want to be that we're learning about the effects on different patients, the more patients we need in trial to do that. So how we balance those two issues, the heterogeneity of patients, the desire to check out low, check for low-level side effects, the fact that histopathology is going to be part of phase three, and creative designs around that. I don't believe we're going to hear how to design it, but I'd like to believe that we will come out of this with enough guidance to understand what designs will and won't be acceptable, and where creative and thoughtful people can make things faster, more efficient, and at the same time, more informative. I don't want to see a situation where you've got to trade information for um, efficiency. I'd like to see if there's a way to capture both and watch. In this section, the group identified specific items of interest. One item that came up in both sections, but in greater detail here, involved length of phase three trial. The white paper suggested, as would FDA on the webcast, that it might be looking for phase three trials of two years or longer. Stephen, Manal, and Kitty in her notes all noted that some drugs in phase two, and currently entering phase three development, show far more dramatic efficacy than earlier agents and work far faster. For those agents, a 12-month trial might be more than adequate to achieve subpart H targets. The issue of sample size arose in several contexts. Manal pointed out the challenge of producing sufficiently heterogeneous patient populations to study key specific subgroups, while Kitty noted in her written question that the IHC guidelines to which the agency referred might require 1,500 or more patients during the trial process, which would be challenging to achieve in a single trial. This led me to ask about a composite trial strategy in which larger phase two studies with non-invasive testing screened patients might boost sample sizes to achieve a safety target without requiring two phase three trials or one exceptionally large one. The question of phase two studies without histopathology arose several times during this part of the discussion. For cirrhotic patients, the same issue arose for phase three with significant discussions about the downsides of biopsy in those patients. In the actual event, the agency provided very little specific guidance again. It did suggest that cirrhotic and fibrotic trials could run in parallel as a way to study a drug both places at once. This could lead to larger sample sizes and possibly one efficient way to proceed. Stephen also explored the idea that phase 2A and B could be done with non-invasive test patients, which would provide a more robust sample for the start of the trial. Finally, we discussed on Friday the idea that the use of the third composite endpoint would make for more robust clinical trials for earlier drugs, since, as was demonstrated in the Aldeferman Phase 2b trial, the placebo success rate was 0% versus 22 for the trial drug, therefore making it easier and more efficient to demonstrate which drugs worked well. Net-net, Panelists on Friday rated our satisfaction level somewhere between 5 and 7 on a 10-point scale with some helpful general insights, but little specific guidance in key areas. We hope you have enjoyed this recording.
If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or anything else in the episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We are releasing one other conversation from this episode. Later this week, we will release specific conversations from our post-webcast episode as well. I hope you'll join us then, as well as now. Stay safe. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com, and we will answer on the podcast or the website. Thanks for listening. See you next week on the podcast.